morning, everyone. I am Perry. I'm from the Boulder campus, and it's wonderful to be with you all this morning here in Thornton. I hope you're having a good summer. And uh, by the way, it's winding down in case you haven't noticed. Hate to be the bearer of bad news there. Um, but it really is a delight to be here. Um, I've been at Calvary for about four years since 2018, and I've gotten to come out here just a couple times, but it's always great to be able to come here and see some familiar faces from the Boulder campus, uh, but to meet some new people as well. You know, there are few things in life that can compare with the exhilaration of a hole-in-one. I remember the time I was on a local course in the area here, and it was a par three, and I was the first to go in my group. And I set my feet, made really good contact with the ball, and watched as it made its way towards the hole. As soon as I hit it, though, I knew that this could be special. Well, you see, the ball made its way through the blades of the windmill. And as it kept rolling, it, it went into the plastic tube that sent it down to the lower level, and it actually ricocheted off of a twig that I didn't even know was there and into the bottom of the cup. Now, the, the truth is, I'm not a golfer. I'm, I don't belong on a golf course at all unless it's putt-putt. That's just who I am. But golf can be an intimidating and exclusive kind of sport. And there may be no better example of how it can be exclusive than Augusta National Golf Course. Even if you're not a golfer, chances are good you've heard of the Masters Tournament, the coveted green jacket that the winner gets of the Masters Tournament. Augusta National is an exclusive place. It'll cost you about $40,000 and a one-time cost to belong to it, and then several thousand dollars every year afterwards, which as far as exclusive golf courses go, that's actually not that much money. It's not really about the money at Augusta. There's an unpublished list of only about 300 members who belong, and they each have a green jacket of their own. But before you get your checkbook out, you should recognize that Augusta has to call you. You don't call them. If you do call them, that'll actually set you back. So me, for one, I haven't let them know that I might be interested. And if they call, I'm going to play hard to get a little bit. But there are some names out of those 300 that have been made public, and they read like a who's who of the rich and famous. These are high achievers, big-time accomplishers, People who have made lots of money and achieved lots of success in life. And there's something true to life about Augusta, where the ones who really belong there are the ones who have achieved their way into high and lofty positions. That's the way life can feel for us. It can feel like it's tilted in favor of those who are beautiful, those who have a lot of money, those who have succeeded and achieved a lot of things in life. Of course, there's a problem then, as we gather to worship this morning on this Sunday morning, if we project that kind of mentality or expectation onto God's kingdom, because God's kingdom operates according to a very different set of rules. It's not the exclusive or the high achievers who belong. God has an entirely different set of expectations and requirements to belong to his kingdom. And we're going to see that this morning as we open our Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. I'd like to invite you to turn there this morning if you have a Bible with you or scroll there on your device. We've been in this series called Unsung Heroes where we're looking at character traits from people who are less familiar, some things that are worth imitating in their own lives. 
And then we're looking at character traits of God that are worth trusting. This morning, we're going to see an example that's worth imitating. Now, I may not score a lot of points in the unfamiliar category for this series, because chances are good you've actually heard of this account. You're familiar with it if you've grown up around the church at all, or if you're familiar with God's word. But there is definitely something worth imitating in this character, and as well, we see character traits of God that are absolutely worth trusting this morning. So without any further delay, let's get into it. John chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Here's what it says. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, this is John the Baptist, and then in Parentheses here, it says, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Okay, so we're picking this up in the middle of a sequence of events that have happened. But what's going on here is this is early in Jesus's ministry. He's been around Jerusalem, and he has just discovered that the religious leaders around Jerusalem have discovered that his ministry is growing in popularity. Jesus knows that that's a bad thing for his own objectives, for his own purposes, He doesn't want their attention, so he wants to put distance between himself and them. So he heads out of Jerusalem, up north to Galilee. Geography matters in this account, so I have a map here to show you what's going on. In the southern part, there's Jerusalem, the region of Judea. And Jesus is going to go up north to where you might see the Sea of Galilee up there, the body of water up near the top. And he goes straight up through Samaria to get there. Now, the text that we just read said that he had to pass through Samaria, which is an interesting comment because he actually didn't have to pass through Samaria. People in his day, Jews, would go around Samaria for reasons that we'll get into in just a minute. But Jesus feels the need to go straight through, to make a straight shot up to Samaria. And so he's on his way, on foot, he's weary from the journey, and he stops at this place, this plot of dirt that has a history to it. It's a plot of dirt that used to belong to Jacob that he had given to his his son, Joseph, and there's a well there. But we're going to find out as we keep reading that not only does the ground have a history, but he's about to meet a person who has a history. So let's keep reading. It says this in verse 7, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So Jesus is alone. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This is a woman with a history of her own. So first off, she's a Samaritan. The Samaritans and the Jews have a long and complicated history, which I'm going to try to summarize and not get bogged down in. But the Samaritans trace their lineage alongside of the Jews, back to the patriarchs, back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They esteem Moses, the prophet of old. But in the 700s BC, the Assyrians had come into the land of Israel and had carried off into exile a portion of God's people. It was part of God's judgment against them for their unfaithfulness to him. 
But they kept some of the people in the land, and they intentionally intermixed them with peoples from other nations who they had brought in as well. The Assyrian scheme was to mix people from different areas together so that they would lose their cultural identity. They would lose their distinctiveness. And so these Samaritans are people who were left in the land and had intermarried with people from other nations. So from a Jewish perspective, they were compromised ethnically. But not only that, the Samaritans also had different theological beliefs. Now, they held to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, but they had their own version, and their own version had some important differences that are actually going to come into play in just a minute as we keep reading the text. So the Jews and Samaritans have things in common. They have things that divide them, though, but one thing that they agree on is they both have animosity towards each other. That's the first strike against this woman. But the second strike against this woman is that she's a woman. Back in this day, women were a lower class than men. And in that kind of scenario, Jewish men were advised to not even communicate, not even address a woman in public, not even their own wives. Jesus, though, seems to be unaware of these cultural conventions. And he actually addresses her by saying, give me a drink. So he says, give me a drink, and she essentially says, why are you talking to me? Let's keep reading. Jesus answered her. He said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Verse 10 is critical, completely key to this whole passage, because it lays out the terms for everything that Jesus wants this woman to know. He says, first of all, if you knew the gift of God, and then second of all, if you knew who it is that's talking to you, you would have asked him and he would have given you a drink. He calls this gift of God living water. Living water at its essence is just water that's flowing freely. It's water that you would find in a stream or a river or an artesian spring springing up from the ground that's bubbling up. It stands in contrast to water that's just still and stagnant. So Jesus is saying, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew who I am, you would have asked me and I would have given you this living water. The woman, though, is confused by that because as she looks at Jesus, Jesus is standing empty-handed. Let's keep reading. Verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She's confused because Jesus is offering this living water, but he's doing it with empty hands. He doesn't have water that he's holding on to to offer in contrast to this water. So she doesn't know exactly what he means by this living water. Where does this come from? And then she says, this water, this well, has the glorious history of being traced back to Jacob. You think of those patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the ones who God had spoken with, the ones who had an intimate relationship with the Lord. Jacob was the one who would be renamed by God Israel. The one who would have the 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes comprising the nation of Israel. One of his sons was Joseph, the one that 
the end of Genesis spends so many chapters explaining his own story. This well was good enough for that Jacob and that Joseph. Why isn't it good enough for Jesus? It's as though she's asking, who do you think you are? And that's exactly what Jesus wants her to be thinking. Okay, let's keep reading. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come to draw water. So Jesus addresses her dilemma, the situation that she doesn't understand, by saying, this water that you see here in this well will make you thirsty again. It's only a temporary relief. But the water that I give you will quench your thirst forever. In fact, even better than that, it will become inside of you a well of springing water that just flows up to eternal life. This water is obviously very, very different from what the water in the well is like. She's starting to just get a glimpse of that when Jesus says that it will become inside of you a spring of water welling up to eternal life, but still she's not quite tracking with what Jesus is talking about. It would be really easy for us to be critical of her and say, gosh, she's so dense. Why can't she just figure out what's going on, what Jesus is actually saying? But that would be to miss the fact that so often people did not understand what Jesus was talking about. His disciples were often clueless and just entirely missed the point of what he had in mind. In fact, just later on in this same passage that we're in right now, the disciples will have their own moment of missing the point. This woman doesn't understand because to her living water means a physical thing, but Jesus is talking about a spiritual thing. And I think in my own life about how dense I can be, how slow I can be to understand what Jesus is truly offering me. I can actually relate to this woman in that sense. Jesus is offering her living water. So what does that mean? Well, in order to see it more clearly, we're helped by actually turning a couple pages to a couple chapters later to John chapter 7. Jesus is back in Jerusalem in John chapter 7. He's at a feast, and he stands up before the crowds, and he says, using very similar language to this passage, he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You notice the same language that's going on here. But then John cracks the code for it here. John says, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So what is the gift of God? What is the living water? It's the Spirit of God that comes and lives inside of us, of those who believe. In the book of Acts, we read Luke, the author of Acts, writing about how the Spirit, the gift of God, the gift of the Spirit had been poured out even to the Gentiles. We see this becoming reality in just a few pages after this in the early church. That's what Jesus is getting at here, and that's what he's speaking to this woman about in chapter 4. So let's go back there and look at her response again, where the woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty 
or have to come here to drink water. Okay, she's not grasping exactly what Jesus has in mind. But here is where we begin to catch a glimpse of the thing in this woman that is worth imitating ourselves. And I would just call it a receptive heart. A receptive heart. The word receptive means this. I have a definition for you. If you like dictionary definitions. Willing to consider or accept new suggestions and ideas. That's just the dictionary definition of what it means to be receptive. But up until this point, we're not seeing it fully yet, but we will see it more fully. This woman has a willingness to listen to what Jesus is telling her. This woman has a willingness to listen to what this strange man, who she just met a few minutes ago, is saying to her and offering to her about the gift of God and about his true identity. As I think about that, it sounds so basic to not even maybe be worth mentioning. But listening is so vital for us if we are going to hear the voice of God. If we are going to hear the voice of Jesus, we have to slow down enough. We have to be quiet enough ourselves to be able to hear his voice. And that's what we see this woman beginning to do. Now she's engaging with him, she's speaking as well, but she's paying attention to what Jesus is telling her. And that's something that's worth imitating ourselves when we think about what it means to have a receptive heart. But Jesus knows that in order for her to really begin to grasp what this living water means, she has to be in better tune with her own true thirst. And that's where Jesus goes next. So let's pick up the text again. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, husbands rather, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. For some reason, this woman has burned through relationship after relationship after relationship. We could stop here and speculate about what kind of a woman she is in terms of her character or her, her decisions. But I'd rather not do that this morning and instead focus more on what we know to be true about this woman. And that's that even though this woman came to the well with an empty water jar, she is in fact loaded down with far greater burdens than that. This is a woman who's carrying around loads of shame. This is a woman who's carrying around loads of regret, of things in her life that she would rather you didn't know about her. But Jesus reveals it, uncovers it, right here in front of the well. Earlier in this passage, John had said that it was about the sixth hour when Jesus showed up and this woman showed up as well. The sixth hour translates to around noon, the heat of the day. It was common for women to come to a well to draw water. Normally they would do it together though in a group. So it was a kind of social event for them. It was a daily task but they would come in the cool of the day, not the heat of the day. But this woman, for some reason, feels like she is not able to come with the other women during the cool of the day. She knows that she's excluded from them, and she has to show up alone during a time when she can be sure no one else is around. This woman has drank from a lot of different wells in her life. 
Again, for whatever reason. But I can't help but wonder how dissatisfied she has been from those other sources of water. The author, Christian apologist C.S. Lewis, said, most people, if they really knew how to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. He goes on to talk about how we have longings in our hearts like vacations or a good career or a great marriage. And sometimes those longings are met. We have these longings met that we do have a good marriage, we do have a great job, or we do have a wonderful vacation. But the problem is even when those things are successful, they can never fully satisfy us. We are still left with this nagging sense of not being fulfilled, of not having our thirst quenched once and for all. Jesus knows that this woman needs to be in tune with that deeper thirst if she's going to understand exactly what living water can give her. That's another quality of a receptive heart, that a receptive heart not only listens to the voice of Jesus, but a receptive heart is in tune with the deepest longings that we have inside of us. That's what it means to begin to have a receptive heart. But a receptive heart also listens to Jesus and also looks for the deepest longings so that we will be open to the truth that Jesus offers. And we're going to see that next. So right after Jesus has just exposed this side of her past, has just let her know that he knows, the woman says to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. I don't know whether this woman is just trying to change the subject or whether she has a legitimate valid concern about this question that she raises with Jesus. But this is one of the major theological disputes between Samaritans and Jews. Jewish people, of course, believe that the temple belongs in Jerusalem. Samaritans, on the other hand, believe that it was supposed to rightfully be at the at the top of this mountain that's right next to this well that Jesus is having the conversation with this woman. It's called Mount Gerizim. And there's a dispute between the Jews and Samaritans over where the right place is to worship God. Notice what Jesus says, though. Jesus says that the Samaritans do not understand who they worship. They do not understand what they worship for salvation is of the Jews. That's what he says in verse 22. So he corrects her. But he also says it's not about where we worship. The ones who truly please the Father are those who worship in spirit and truth. It's not about where, but it's about how. In spirit and truth, I believe, is a reference to God's spirit, again, dwelling inside of those who believe. In some versions of the Bible, some translations rather, 
the S is capitalized here, just to draw out that fact that it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. We shouldn't think of these as two different things, but as two different aspects of the same thing, God's Spirit. The true worshipers are those who believe in Jesus, who have God's Spirit inside of them, and who, because they have God's Spirit, are people who worship God in truth, because the Spirit is what testifies to what is true. And meanwhile, this woman is being confronted over things that she has held to that are not true. This is another element of a receptive heart. A receptive heart pursues and embraces truth, even when it means that we have to embrace the idea that we have been wrong about something. But this woman, she doesn't run away when Jesus corrects her, but rather she stays engaged. Let's pick up the story again. Jesus said, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Remember those two things from verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's speaking to you, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This verse directly confronts that second element, who it is that's speaking to you. She says, I know that the Messiah will straighten out all of these disputes. And Jesus says, literally in the original language, I am the one speaking to you. Jesus is using that divine name saying, I am. I am this one, the one speaking to you now. This is the gift of God. This is the identity of the one who's speaking to her. And now she's in position to receive that gift of God. Well, we have a, a, a change of scene, so to speak, where the disciples now are about to come back. And let's read what happens next. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. So this woman, after just this short conversation with this stranger, has gone from believing what she believed prior to that to now having her beliefs reshaped and recast to know the gift of God and to have a better understanding of who this man is who she's speaking with. And now, when the disciples show up, she feels like that's enough for her. She needs to leave and get out of there. But she doesn't fill up the water jar and say, it was great to meet you, wonderful conversation. I hope the rest of your trip goes really well. But instead, she drops the water jar empty and returns to the city and boldly proclaims to people, hey, come see what just happened to me. Come see this man who told me everything that I ever did. This is a woman who probably doesn't want to raise that up with other people. This is a woman, again, who has been loaded down with shame. But she's willing to say, this man knows everything about me. Could this be the Christ? Look at that boldness. And here's like the ultimate indicator of a receptive heart, that it responds in action. A receptive heart listens, it embraces the truth, but it ultimately responds in action to what's going on. 
it's so interesting to draw a contrast between what's going on in this chapter and what happened a chapter before this in John chapter 3. There, a man with a green jacket from Augusta National named Nicodemus, a man who had a lot of status. He didn't actually have the jacket. I'm kidding about that. But he had a lot of status. This is a man with a lot to lose. This is a man with a great reputation, a man who is a Pharisee, a man who is part of the religious establishment. He has his own conversation with Jesus, but he goes to Jesus at night under the cover of darkness where he can't be discovered. This woman, though, is having a conversation in broad daylight with Jesus. And she, in broad daylight, goes and says to everyone she can find in her city, hey, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? What an example for us to follow of a receptive heart, of a heart that responds. I just wonder if sometimes we might have too much to lose. We might feel like we have too high of a reputation that we may not be so bold as she is. I pray that I would have a kind of heart that doesn't feel like I have too much to lose, that doesn't feel like I have a reputation that I need to protect or preserve, but that would boldly step out and declare the wonders of what Jesus has done in my own life. That's what a receptive heart does. So the disciples have come back, and Jesus engages in a conversation with them where, again, the disciples miss the point. They urged Jesus to eat. They'd gone into the city to buy food, which John had told us earlier, and they urged Jesus to eat, and Jesus says that he has this other food to eat. And they completely miss what he's talking about. But Jesus was referring to the fact that his food is to do the will of the one who sent him. His will is to do God's, or his food is to do God's will. And then he talks about the harvest and encourages them to lift up their eyes because the fields are white with harvest. Likely a reference to these townspeople, these Samaritans, dressed in white, coming closer to the well. And now let's pick the story back up. It says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. What an amazing picture of the power of a receptive heart. What an amazing picture of what someone who has just come to faith can do when that person is submitted, who is yielded to God's will. Someone who responds appropriately is someone who responds in action. And this woman who said, hey, this is what Jesus has done in my life, has now introduced people in a way so that they don't have just a secondhand word, but they have a firsthand experience with Jesus for themselves. This is a woman who did not even belong at the well with the other women from that area, but now she belongs in God's kingdom. This is how different God's kingdom is from the rest of the world. This is not about high status or any achievements that we might have, but there's only one criteria to belong in God's kingdom, and that is belief. It's belief only. And I think if you wrap up all of this, what you see is that 
There's nothing that can get between a receptive heart and the Savior of the world, that term that they gave for Jesus. There's nothing that can stand between. No history, no baggage, no disappointments or failures in the past can get between a receptive heart and the Savior of the world. This is what Jesus does in our lives when we believe. It doesn't matter how we may have failed in dozens of ways in life, how we may have regrets that we carry around with us and baggage, but nothing can get between us if our heart is receptive and believes in Christ. This is what Jesus does in all of our lives. And we see in this woman something that is worth imitating, and that is her receptive heart. But remember, there's another element to the series that we're in. We're also looking at character traits of God we could trust. Well, here are just a few things that stand out to me from this passage. First of all, we have a God who is compassionate. This is a woman who doesn't belong. She would never qualify for the green jacket at Augusta National. But yet, she belongs because Jesus delights in reaching those who the world rejects. Jesus delights in that. This is a God who is compassionate. Just a chapter before this is that famous verse out of John chapter 3. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That word, the world, includes all of those who have been left out, left behind, who've been kicked out, who've been disqualified. Those are the ones who Jesus came to die for and to reach. He's a God of compassion. Not only that, but he is a God who knows us. And this should be a great comfort to us. He knows this woman's baggage. He knows her story. And he knows ours as well. Whatever we've carried into this room this morning, the things that maybe we would rather forget or we haven't thought about in a long time, Jesus knows all of that. And yet he's still the God of compassion. He's still the God who loves us. Finally, this is a God who initiates Jesus didn't start every conversation like he does this one with the woman. But in a big picture theological sense, this is a God who is initiated in all of our lives. Paul, in chapter 5 of Romans, says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We don't have to clean up our act, get our life together, get all the pieces fixed and brought back, glued back together nicely before we can come to Christ. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This morning, my prayer is that we all would have hearts that are receptive. Maybe Jesus is nudging us a little bit this morning and saying, give me a drink. Because he wants to stir up in us our deepest thirst, our deepest longing, and understand how the gift of God is the only thing that can satisfy that thirst, and that we would understand that his true identity is the one who gives us this living water. Let's pray. God, we just thank you, Father, for your mercy, for your compassion, for your omniscience, that you know all things, God and that you have initiated in our lives. Lord, I pray that in this account from John chapter 4, that we would see ourselves in it, understanding that you call out to us to drink from that same well, to give that same life-giving water to us, 
Lord, I pray that however you would call us to respond today, that we would have hearts to do it. Lord, by the power of your spirit, I pray that you would soften our hearts if they're hard. I pray you would open our eyes and our ears if we've been distracted. God, I pray that we would listen well, we would listen to your voice, God, and that you would move in our lives according to your grace. We pray all of this in your powerful name, the name of Jesus, amen.